everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey Rar, Knockreiner. <laughs> Too bad we're not on video for that one, Mark. And by the way, I now know why you pronounce it rare. You don't want to be caught on a recording saying rar out loud. <laughs> That's exactly it. Um, on today's episode, you will learn why Corey is making large cat noises. Um, we'll also go over uh, an update to last week's discussion on blocking office macros. Uh, and we will end with a discussion on the cost of a breach and other key data breach statistics courtesy of IBM and the Pwnman Institute. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and uh, trot our way Center in. Center on in like a stray. By the way, go play that game, Stray. It's awesome. Oh, it's on my list. So let's start this week with an update from last week, I guess. Uh, well, I mean, an update from a saga that's been going on for the last six months, basically. Uh, so you may have remembered back in October of last year, Microsoft announced they're going to start blocking macros in Office documents that are downloaded from the Internet, uh, which also includes email attachments as well, too. Um, and since then, it's been a bit of time to get the ball rolling. I think it was February when they actually kind of started blocking it, and then they paused it uh, because of what ended up being a lack of documentation causing pain for end users. And they finally finished it up, uh, their, their rollout, which we discussed last week on the podcast. Uh, so right after we recorded that episode, uh, researchers at Proofpoint released their findings from a research study of phishing attacks between October 21st and June 2022. Uh, and they found that after Microsoft made that first announcement, uh, threat actors did actually begin moving away from macro-based threats towards other messages that use things like uh, container files, so ISO files or RAR attachments. RAR, not rare. RAR, I've gotten enough crap for that over the last <laughs> few months that I've learned my lesson. I like my compression blue in the middle, a little rare. Even my dad gave me crap for it. So <laughs> anyways, RAR attachments, uh, as well as Windows shortcut files or .lnk files. Um, specifically, though, they said macro-enabled attachments as a malware delivery vector decreased 66% during that period, which when I saw like the headline for this report, I thought was, yeah, of course it went down, but I figured it was going to go down like, you know, 5% and oh my god, it's down, they're responding. But 66% is actually a pretty decent drop in what was and still is admittedly a very popular uh, malware initiation vector. Um, so that was kind of interesting seeing. For sure. By the way, I think we'll get to it. But in the, in one way, though, I wonder if they're exactly down because I know the container. I know I know the, the latest file is those containers, ISOs, RARs, shortcut links. By the way, shortcut links, another old file type coming back again. But I for the container files, at least, it sounds like some of them are being used to still. I mean, something's inside the container, obviously. And it sounds like the con inside the container might be what is containing a a macro word document or a word document that has VBA, malicious VBA. Yeah, and actually let's touch on that for a second. So like this whole blocking mechanism works uh, based off an attribute that gets set on the file called the zone identifier. So when you download a Office document from the internet or as an email attachment, 
that attribute says that it was downloaded from the internet. Um, and that triggers Microsoft Office to flag any uh, enabled macros or any other dynamic content in it when you go to open it in Word or Excel or whatever. So if that attribute is set, it says, oh, this was coming from the internet, which means it's more risky. And if there's macros, we're not going to let you run them, basically. Yeah, it's the default. And it's also what the granular, we've talked about granular macro controls, where you can have something different for internet-based files versus not. And that zone identifier is obviously what's being used to tell where the file was open from, so to speak. Yep. And that attribute, it's been in use for a long time. This is why those security ribbons have popped up. It's just now they are blocking and making it more difficult for you to unblock it, uh, if, it it's, if it's downloaded from the internet. Um, so Threat Actors found that if you use a container file, like an ISO or a RAR or something like that, to hold the Office document, uh, and that container file is downloaded from the internet, there's no security mechanism preventing you from mounting and unloading that container and all of its contents. And then the files inside, like Office documents, don't have that flag then. Basically, it only gets set on that first order document. Anything or, or in that first order file, anything inside that file, like Office documents, doesn't get flagged. And so they're seeing uh, threat actors now attaching ISOs and RAR files and other things to emails where uh, if the victim's tricked into double clicking it to open it, it'll mount it up like a folder basically. And if they open the Word document or Excel spreadsheet in there, then there's no security protections other than the default like macro warning on it. That at least doesn't have these hardcore block no matter what. And they saw that there was actually an increase of 175% for the usage of these types of files to deliver malware over that same period. And you mentioned old file types. Those .lnk files had the largest increase at 1,675% since October 21st. That's pretty nuts. So it's clear they're still using Office documents to stage usually their fileless malware campaigns because basically if you can get macros to run, you can get PowerShell going pretty dang easy on that computer. And now they just have that extra step of, oh, it's in a container now. Like, it feels like it technically this should be something that like on a technical level, Windows should be able to solve like a file that comes out of that gets flagged with it. At the same time, though, I guess there's probably quite a bit of potential collateral damage um, in those scenarios. So like, is this something that Microsoft should try and solve now that they fixed the low hanging fruit of just office documents downloaded straight from the Internet? Or at some point, does this pivot back to it's on the administrators to do something about it? I mean, it, it would be nice if Microsoft could still figure out that a, a office file within a container might have come from the Internet. It, it becomes hard, though. I mean, I don't know exactly how they propagate this own identifier attribute. Uh, obviously, via email, when things are in email, and I imagine that it's, you know, if there was that attribute in the ISO file, which there isn't, I don't think it, you know, the ISO file would get it, but when you open the ISO file, you're doing on the local. You're doing it on the local system. So the how? How does Microsoft realize that something being opened on the local system was from the internet? You know what I mean? The thing I, I hear what you're saying. I, I would At love the for them time, though, to it fix is Microsoft it. Windows. They could literally do whatever they want with that, that operating system. Good point. Good point. So if they could do it, but I, I think as you pointed out, it's the how do you do that without false positives, without the collateral mm -hmm. damage of, of other, you know, if they make a mistake, is every file suddenly internet based, even though it's been sitting on your system for a bit? If they could fix it, it'd be great. 
And I do think, you know, I, the, the real moral of the story doesn't seem to me that threat actors are totally pivoting away from my office macros. It's that they're finding ways to defeat uh, the macro protection. You know, the, the focus on ISO and RAR seems just as much as an evasion technique for for this this macro zone identifier than anything else, at least from the outside. Yeah, but progress is better than nothing at all. And so at least they have nailed that low hanging fruit now of just a office document attached to an email like that will probably go the way of, you know, the executable attached to an email of just kind of fading away in popularity because there are other methods that work a little better that are a little more difficult for the attacker. But one can uh, at least these these easy ones are starting to go away. It, so that does still mean that like, and by the way, they, they, these they, these container files are a barrier of entry. I mean, they require user interaction that the macro didn't. It's a lot more unusual to receive ISO or even RAR nowadays. So uh, I, I feel like just the fact that they have these container files are a trigger for even less sophisticated users. Oh, something weird is going on here and not even touch it at all. So it's but, like each additional click is one layer of someone thinking, oh, wait a minute, do I really want to do this basically? for sure yeah so good news for sure good news and interesting seeing that even just the announcement had uh such a drastic change on <laughs> how these malware payloads were being delivered because i mean it wasn't until just a couple weeks ago that it was actually finally fully implemented um, but hey good on microsoft for ultimately getting it done um so speaking of microsoft um, so also just last week, their research team published a blog post accusing a Austrian, not Australian, as I first typed this when I was doing my notes, uh, Austrian company called DSIRF. Uh, they accused them of selling zero day vulnerabilities in Windows and Adobe Reader that were ultimately used to deploy the Sub-Zero malware toolkit to organizations located in Europe and Central America. Uh, some of the targets included law firm, yeah, law firms, banks, and strategic consultancies in countries like Austria, uh, the United Kingdom, and Panama. Uh, so, pausing for a second, uh, let's talk about DSIRF. Uh, so, they advertise themselves as a quote provider of bespoke research and security solutions. If you go to their website, they call themselves a threat intelligence company. I'd say hacking people is a very extreme form of threat intelligence. And aren't there laws like there there are laws to protect against I, I mean I don't know the laws in Austria so maybe it's just the wild west when it comes to um computer fraud and abuse over there. But like in the US if you're an intelligence company and you sell literal malware like that's what got Marcus Hutchins thrown to jail for creating malware as a kid like why can't we go after organizations doing the same thing? Maybe it's different in Austria. I always say I shouldn't connect Austria to Germany, but I always do. And I feel like even Germany has more hack tool laws than other countries. I can't remember for sure, but Germany certainly has plenty of anti-hacking laws. And I thought they were one of those countries that were uh, less, uh, less, you know, accepting of hacking tools, for instance. I'll have to check. But I'm sure, obviously, Austria is a different country, but I, I connect them together politically for some reason. Yeah. And so basically, like Microsoft calls them a private security offensive actor or PSOA. And 
like we'll talk about it That's a little a bit acronym, more. Of like, by the way, we need to pause for a second at another yeah. new acronym created, a PSOA. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. I, they, they're another NSO group, in my opinion. So certainly, but wow, now we have a PSOA. PSOA, yes, they are very offensive. That's for sure. Um, and a bit unlike, so you mentioned NSO group, which was the Israeli-based uh, organization that would sell knowledge of exploits or toolkits. It seems like DSRF actually has more of an actual hand in the engagement itself when it comes time for deploying these attacks. Um, so Microsoft said that basically there's typically two different categories of PSOAs, uh, ones that will sell malware or exploits to their clients and ones that actively participate in the uh, the attack. And they believe that DSRF actually is both, uh, that they actually suggest they have more direct involvement because of they actually operate some of the infrastructure for command and control and delivery. In fact, they even linked these attacks. These They found the zero-day exploits during some attacks, and they were able to link them back to DSRF from a few things. So first off, the command and control infrastructure used by the malware was directly linked with that organization. There was a DSIRF associated GitHub account used in one account in attack. Uh, there was a code signing certificate issued to them used in another attack to sign an exploit. Uh, and then there were other open source news reports attributing this malware uh, sub-zero to DSIRF. Which, man, this is not really like, you'd think if you were a, a purveyor of malware, You'd go a little bit further out of your way to cover your tracks, or maybe they're just trying to drum up business by signing all of their exploits with their company code signing certificate. Who knows? <sighs> I don't know. I just don't like it. I found NSA Group, which I, I think NSA Group was one that more sold than helped use. Uh, and I found that disgusting, frankly, for a private organization, so-called legit business to do that. So one that actually participates in it, too, just seems outright wrong. Yeah, I, I guess NSO I Group's uh, Pegasus spyware for Apple devices is still floating around there. Like we keep seeing new, more and more news articles of people, typically politicians and activists, still getting hit by that too. Like it does seem to be that that's where these style of attacks tend to go from like oppressive governments towards uh, vulnerable populations. But I'm actually, in this one though, they're going after banks and law firms, which yeah, is private companies kind of nuts yeah talk about strategic operational intelligence there yeah yeah i'm sure they're saving nations by going after banks intellectual property i'm sure those are all good guys i don't know and by the way i, I did look up the there is a german law that the sole possession of hardware software or other tools that can be used to commit cyber crime can constitute a criminal offense Possession. Uh, Crap, I'm going to jail. 202C. Then. Exactly. I mean, this was, <laughs> I, I guess my memory was right that they just have hacker tool laws. So simple things like Metasploit and Nmap like, theoretically could trigger something like this. So it's funny that uh, a country that's so tied to Austria right next door is, you know, has these major laws for even having access to hacking tools. And this, you know, company is selling them helping you use them, managing the C2 and stealing data. I, I guess I shouldn't say stealing data. We don't know that for sure yet, but kind of gross. Austria is a member of the European Union, too, and they tend to have pretty strong rules and regulations yeah. around cyber activities. So it's it's interesting. Uh, I feel like I, I had personally not heard of DSIRF until this last week. I found out. And this may be a scenario where they were under the radar, and now that they are not, 
uh, they may get the ban hammer swung at them. Um, so the vulnerabilities, though, going back to that, uh, these were actually zero day vulnerabilities at the time. And Microsoft wasn't able to initially identify the Adobe Reader version of it. They just noticed that a brand new Adobe Reader release was the initial vector that dropped a DLL onto the system. Um, and then they exploited this this vulnerability, which was given CVE 2022-22047, uh, which is basically like at a high level, a privilege, privilege escalation and sandbox escape vulnerability. Uh, basically, the exploit chain would use Adobe Reader to drop a DLL onto the disk uh, from the sandboxed Adobe Reader process. And then this CVE then instructs another process on the computer to load up that DLL next time the process is spawned. It basically modifies that application's manifest and says, oh yeah, load up this DLL also. And so if you can do that to a privileged process, uh, then you can basically trigger code execution with that library at any permission level that you want. Um, so a very powerful exploit to have in your arsenal and as a part of this exploit chain. And clearly it worked. They had quite a few successful targets uh, before Microsoft and Adobe were able to identify these vulnerabilities even existed. Uh, good news is, uh, at least on the Windows ones, uh, they have been patched as of the July Patch Tuesday release. So hopefully by now that you're listening to this a month or so after the fact, three weeks or so, you've installed that Patch Tuesday patch. But uh, if you haven't, it does have the fix for this one. But man, I, I do feel like we need some sort of crack down on these private organizations purveying malware and exploit kits like it feels like like arms trading which is already like physical Very arms much. trading is borders on either frowned upon to strictly illegal depending on where you're at and this is basically the cyber equivalent of it it sure feels that way i get on governments for stockpiling zero day and this is the back this is the private arms trade organization that seems to help support that. So yeah, I do. I wonder who their customers are. I, I don't like the fact that they exist, but uh, it's their customers that help them exist. So it'd be interesting to know who their customers are. Like just, I went through their website for like half an hour and they, they it felt like they were advertising themselves as like, if you are an enterprise and you're trying to learn about what your competitors are doing so you can have the competitive advantage, then use us kind of thing. And they most of their advertisements are like, oh, we use, you know, open source intelligence and we'll go find intelligence on them, not, oh, we'll hack them and find their trade secrets and all their plans and then release them to you. It's the fact that they're going after law offices is a giant, giant red flag. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, hopefully at this point, the cat is out of the bag and. Maybe we can in, have, in, stop having private companies enhanced participate. Due, due diligence is like a new buzzword now. It's, enhanced, it's like one well, of those pretty damn enhanced. <laughs> that's what they they call it is enhanced enhanced due diligence. Uh, that's definitely coded. And that's okay. I I've said my piece. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it there. And hopefully, someone in the EU yeah. can sort this organization out. I love it. That's, the motto so that pops dumb. up when you click there, the expectation of business dependent upon diligence. The mechanic that would perfect his work must first sharpen his tools. Uh, <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh my goodness. I mean, clearly they're effective. They found zero days in Windows and Adobe, but that's not something to necessarily be proud of. Nope. <laughs>
Not if you're selling them to someone to have people break into companies and steal sensitive information for enhanced due diligence. Like I thought NSO group was going to be the like the straw that broke the camel's back and we'd see like a landslide of regulations in the US and the EU and around the world like protecting against this style of activity from a private organization. Uh, Maybe having it occur inside the EU itself will be the one that drives it forward. Gross. (laughs) I wonder how GDPR affects the data that they're gathering with their spyware. (laughs) Wouldn't that be the greatest if it was a GDPR regulatory fine that finally brought them down? (laughs) Anyways, uh, moving on to the last topic. So uh, there's a report that, Corey, you and I follow every single year, uh, has really good information that's conducted, at least sponsored by IBM, conducted by the Poneman Institute. Um, And it's released as the cost of a data breach report each year, uh, where basically it's a survey of organizations that have suffered a breach. They ask them questions about, you know, monetary costs, obviously, but how long did it take you to identify it, contain it, uh, pair it with information about what vertical they're in, what types of security controls are, what their overall security maturity are is. And then they put out a report uh, for all of us to read and use in slide decks, basically. I think... Uh, uh... 550 businesses this year yeah they surveyed if i remember right this is like their 17th year of conducting the study too so it's been going on for quite some time also Uh, i I don't know if ibm's been participating the whole time but i i recall their name and sponsoring the last few ones I, i i think it's different corporate sponsors but they've done a few and we use it's not the biggest number. I'm sure we'll talk about it, but they they tend to have a good dwell time average that I look at every year. And by dwell time, I mean mean time to live versus mean time to identify things like malware. How, how long does malware sit on the average breach system before people find out? But yep. we'll get to it. Why don't we go through it? Yeah. So last week they released their latest report for 2022. Um, And there were a few interesting stats out of it. Uh, So first off, the average cost of a breach rose 13% to $4.4 million globally, uh, which sounds like a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, speaking of inflation, uh, the one specific to the U.S., uh, breaches in the U.S. rose to $9.4 million. Oh, my gosh. So speaking of inflation, even impacting the uh, the cyber criminals and their victims now, too. Um. But that U.S. was far and away the the most expensive uh, region to suffer a breach in in terms of cost. And this isn't just, you know, the like a ransomware payment. This is the downtime from lost productivity, the cost of bringing in an organization to help you investigate and find the holes, the, the loss of communication, sending letters and all the crap that costs a little bit of money to all your, yeah. your customers if you're they're affected. Uh, and if you were the victim of a large breach, so I think their threshold was 10 million or more records, it rose up to the hundreds of millions of dollars, which is kind of nuts. Um, you mentioned the the mean time to identify, so the amount of time it takes to uh, identify that a breach has occurred, it has actually dropped, uh, which is what we've seen in other statistics from other areas too, that the dwell time or time to identify is going down. Uh, it didn't go down a whole lot, though. So in 2021, it was 287 days. Uh, in 2022, it was down to 277 days. So a whole 10 days quicker, but still like seven months 
from the point of infection to the point yeah. where you identify it. I was going to say, unless we're talking literally hours or days, the dwell time going down to, you know, even three months to one month isn't that big a win yet. No. Uh, they had some additional stats in there too, some factors in it. So organizations that deployed security AI and automation, so two big buzzwords, but still useful technologies, they actually detected breaches two and a half months quicker on average. So still, you know, four and a half months, if my math is correct here, but considerably better than those that relied on like legacy-based tooling, which is cool. Um, when it came to uh, security systems complexity, organizations with a high security systems complexity ended up paying nearly double those with low complexity, which when you think about it makes sense. Like you want your tools to be simple and able to catch threats without um, potentially missing configuration options, um, where security high complexity means that, yes, you may have more bells and whistles to turn on, but if you don't turn them on correctly or in the correct uh, configurations, then you're potentially just not having them set up at all and missing things. Uh, one interesting stat, so 83% of respondents have suffered multiple breaches. Uh, so this wasn't their first rodeo, um, which is in line with my expectations. Like these days, it seems to be, I, you and I say the same thing, like it's not a matter of if, but when. And sometimes it's a matter of when and how often. Um, it's also curious, I... I wonder if they have a definition for a breach versus an incident, because I mean, uh, if you track every incident, a piece of malware landing on a laptop would could be tracked as an incident. Uh, maybe you recover that laptop quickly. Maybe the malware doesn't laterally move at all, and maybe it's relatively small. But I'm curious if if that would does a breach need to be like a actual compromise of a network for a period of time to constitute a breach? I bet I can get that answer. But either way, it's it's not it's not surprising uh, that a company would have multiple. I mean, you're going to keep being a target as you're online. So, and I agree, it is not a matter of if but when. Uh, even companies like us that take security seriously know that it's you know you'll have incidents one day. And I mean, we've seen this in other uh, reports as well, too, like specifically around ransomware, where like if you end up paying that ransom, uh, you basically just paint a giant target on your back. And it was something like two thirds of all organizations that paid the ransom ended up being hit by ransomware again within the same year. And more often than not, the exact same threat actors again. Blackmail. I wonder who I wonder who's going to respond to my blackmail. Oh, maybe it's someone that has before. <laughs> like, especially if you just pay to get your data back and you don't do any uh, enhanced due diligence uh, to ensure <laughs> that you've actually closed up the holes that let them in in the first place. Um, let's see, other stats that were in here. Uh, so they tracked the average cost of breaches based off the initial vector. Uh, the most expensive and second most frequent method was phishing, uh, coming in at around $4.9 million per breach. Uh, the most frequent, though, was stolen or compromised credentials. Uh, that one was only slightly behind at four and a half million dollars per breach on average. Um, the most expensive, uh, I guess tied for the most expensive was business email compromise at 4.91 uh, million, uh, but significantly less frequent than phishing on its own. And that business email compromise is actually the, the type of fraud and uh, breach activity that we discussed, what, two weeks ago with the adversary in the middle um, 
analysis that Microsoft's research team did, where once they get the credentials, they'll use that victim's email to then go conduct fraud against other organizations and hide their tracks all along the ways by automatically sending replies to the the inbox archive, which is kind of nuts. Um, mentioned ransomware victims. So those that chose to pay fared only slightly better than those that didn't in the initial total costs, uh, but they fared worse in the long run because they were more commonly retargeted within months of the initial attack. Um, other takeaways, so 60% of organizations were forced to increase the price of their products in response to a breach, which makes sense. If you have a massive expense come in, uh, you got to make that money back somehow. I, I, I don't know, man. It's, uh, I guess it makes sense when you think of a business, but you think of, uh, yeah, if the cost of my product, COGS, costs more, I, it's, it's okay for me to increase the price for a customer because I'm just carrying it on. But the breach is not something your customer did. It's not part of your product. You're basically saying, uh, I messed up, so you're going to pay for it. <laughs> it's, yes, on the face of that is exactly what it is. Um, but I imagine for a lot of these organizations, it's basically it's how you survive. Like, you have to. Yeah. Like, yeah. Otherwise, the other the option is just do shut the doors. Out of business. Yeah. Uh, they also had in the report it was something like 32 percent, 33 percent of organizations had to close at least part of their business in response to a breach uh, permanently, um, which is, I imagine, significantly larger for smaller organizations, too. Like, yes, the smaller businesses probably don't have the uh, millions or tens of million dollars in cost of a breach. They're probably on the lower end of the average, but that's still a even on a smaller amount, like tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars it can be enough to shutter a small organization, too. Um, let's see. 73% of organizations had an IR plan, which is actually way higher than I thought for an incident response plan. Um, but only 63% of those have tested it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think they also, I, I mean, uh, the, the plan could just be a policy. We write those too. But I, I think there is another stat. 62% of the organizations stated they're not sufficiently staffed for security needs. So maybe uh, IR plan's not good enough if you don't have the resources to, to follow it. Yeah. And I mean, what can you do if you're in that situation? Like, I guess that's the time where you partner with a, like a security services provider in order to get that staff. Yeah, it seems like an MSP, if you're a small enough company, managed or, or managed security service providers, even if an MSP doesn't have security services you can use. But you, you can definitely outsource that to a trusted managed service provider of some sort. Make do with what you have. I'm certain you can cross-train folks, but we think it's probably more important to have experienced security staff handle those if you can't afford it. Maybe we can... Uh, uh, you can make use of the U.S. government's new uh, cybersecurity um, apprenticeship program as well, too. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, last big stat, though, was only 41% of respondents said that they've deployed a zero-trust security architecture. And that was actually a significant factor in bringing down the cost of a breach, too, for the organizations that had some form not even like a fully mature zero trust architecture, but even ones that are like mid maturity levels had significantly lower costs, uh, which again, totally makes sense. 
because at the face of it, zero trust is all about limiting the blast radius of a potential incident, where if you do have a compromise, limiting what kind of access they potentially can get before you're able to contain By the way, I've found, I think you mentioned this, I'm surprised I didn't jump and comment on it. You're talking about AI. Uh, I found it interesting that AI lowered the cost of a breach quite a bit. Uh, you know, we hear all this to, to insecurity now. I think AI, maybe machine learning too, sometimes becomes this buzzword of, oh, it can solve everything. Oh, MLAI, it must be fine. Uh, but I think security folks know, well, there's a lot of great things machine learning can do. I do think it's very important. It, it definitely doesn't solve every security problem yet. But at least according to this report, it does suggest it, some of that uh, AI ML you know, detection capability must be working because folks that have it incurred you know, $3 million less uh, in the I average breach. It's, it's one of those where it is a buzzword, and I feel like the, the space is probably not full, but there is a probably a large portion of folks in there or organizations or businesses in there that are piggybacking off the buzzword and not necessarily providing a huge amount of value. But the reality is like it's taking off in cybersecurity because machine learning algorithms work like they do a really good job of predicting if something's going to be bad or not based off of features that you and I as human beings wouldn't have even known to look at within like a file or an attack pattern or something like that. And in places like malware detection, I mean, ML has been helping out. Malware detection hasn't been a human researcher game for a long time. Yeah, there, there is that human researcher at the end of this automated channel every time you get new binaries. But ML definitely, you know, there's places in security where it's actually pretty mature and it clearly helps. And just automation in general can go a long ways too. Like you don't have to have fancy AI machine learning algorithms to be able to automate some of your defenses where if you see certain type of alert, well, maybe you isolate that host until you can go and investigate what's going on. Like even that can be enough to stop something from propagating across your network and increasing the cost of your breach if you suffer one. In either case, I found it pretty, pretty interesting and neat. It is, uh, we joke about it sometimes, but we also know the way our product and company uses it. It is, uh, there are people that overuse the term for sure, but it is obviously effective at some of the things it does. And we'll get more and more. I mean, by its very nature, it gets more effective as time goes on and data builds. Now, how come blockchain didn't solve all the security problems? Like, why is that not bringing the cost of breaches down? Maybe they forgot to ask about uh, if all your blockchains are secured by but us. But I thought blockchain solved every single problem facing this, this world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyways, that's enough SAS for today. Uh, if you want to see the report, though, it's IBM's Cost of a Breach Report 2022. Um, they actually, on their landing page, do a really good job of just a executive summary as well of some of the key points. Uh, but the report itself each year is always worth a, a read through just to see what the threat landscape looks like for breaches around the world and even sector specific as well, too. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.